then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower of the regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I want to get really real today in this sermon. I want to start, don't always do this, but sharing a personal story uh, about a huge argument between me and my wife. <laughs> Melissa is over here. I haven't asked for her permission. It started last week. We were in a toy shop with our parents. I wanted to buy a model of the Hulk, but Melissa grabbed it out of my hands. So I spat my dummy out and threw myself on the floor and had a screaming tantrum. Then Melissa got in trouble as well because she threw her toys out of the pram and she stole some sweets again. When we got home, we were both made to sit on the naughty step for four minutes. It seemed like an eternity. Luckily, I got a large bottle of milk before bed, but I drank too much too quick and I was sick over my dad's shoulder. I do this every night. Then I went to bed and slept for 14 hours. But it was okay because underneath my unicorn onesie, I was wearing a nappy. Now, that isn't true, by the way. Some of you are wondering what kind of church you've come into. What, what is wrong with that story, with that picture? It's obvious. Some behaviour is understandable for toddlers, but not for mature people. There are developmental stages that are natural for infants, which would be grotesque if they were carried on into adult life. And a person who refused to mature would miss out on so much. He or she would forsake so many of the joys and the opportunities and the privileges of adult life. I asked three children yesterday what they most looked forward to when they grew up. Really interesting to ask children this. The eight-year-old said, I really look forward to making my own home. He then revealed that he thought 
that a house in our street could be bought for £525. <laughs> Mr Fusero's off there. The 12-year-old said he looked forward to having my own family. And the teenager replied, getting married. I'd love to spend that much time with someone who is my best friend. Now, those were great answers. But, you know, for any of those things to happen, it will take maturity, won't it? What is maturity? Now, the dictionary that I looked at pointed to two aspects of maturity, the physical and the psychological. So physically, when we say a person is mature, we mean they're fully developed uh, physically. Huge changes go through our bodies from the moment we're born, through childhood, through adolescence, until we reach maturity. And after that, it's all downhill. <laughs> Secondly, there's psychological maturity. This is the, uh, the stage of a, a mental and emotional development that we would say is characteristic of a mature adult. And we say phrases sometimes about young people that, oh, this young woman, she's mature beyond her years. Meaning the way she thinks about life and the way she responds emotionally is mature. Maturity makes life so much deeper and richer. When we mature, we have developed the ability to take advice and to make wise decisions. We develop skills that are needed to serve other people in community. We, some of us, make our own money, stop relying on mum and dad, and learn how to spend, how to save, how to invest. We assume responsibility for our lives. We learn how to care for other people. We face a crisis without falling apart. We perhaps can help change the world for good. Maturity involves the development of one's own values and one's own personal integrity. It speaks of growth in our wisdom and character. It gives us the strength to go through adversity and learn through it. Maturity gives us the perspective to endure hardship and suffering, to endure failure and disappointment, and actually to grow as a result. Maturity is a good thing, and actually it's an essential thing. And it's essential for us as individuals, as individual families, and it turns out it's important for churches as well. Now, we're in a series at the moment at Grace Church on the church. And we're, for two weeks, we're looking at one of the most important passages in the Bible on the church. Rupert, uh, sorry, Lana just read it to us. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. And in this text, the Apostle Paul develops a key New Testament image for the church, which is the body of Christ. The church is a body, the body of Christ. And let me be completely candid. This is basically a long sermon with three points. Unity, diversity and maturity. But that sermon would have lasted for over an hour. So I chopped it in two. And I hope you are all truly thankful for that. <laughs> so last week we considered Paul's teaching on the importance of the unity of the body. And the diversity of the body. The gifts that Jesus has given to it. Paul says that just like our, our personal, our human bodies. They are a unity of many different parts that all work together. And if they are working in unity it is a really great and glorious thing. And unity needs to be pursued constantly within the local congregation. And then he talks about how Jesus, when he ascended on high, when Jesus rose from the dead and went to 
heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father, the place of authority. Jesus gave, he kind of showered gifts on his church. And he gives, it says, to each one, grace. Gives you a portion of grace. And last week we thought about how every single Christian person, every single member of the church has been given gifts by Jesus and we need to think what they are and how we can use them. Now we come on to this third crucial aspect of the body of Christ, and it's that the body must mature. The body must mature. Just look with me again at the passage, for, uh, verses 13 and 15. You see in verse 13 it says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then in verse 15, uh, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. See, Paul's emphasis here is that the church must not stay as a kind of undeveloped and weak and un- unstable infant, but it must grow up to be mature, to be all that God wants for it. So my informal title today is a little bit cheeky. And it's this, let's grow up. Three points, and Ali's very helpful. He's put them on the screen. Need, knowledge, and nurture. The need for maturity, the knowledge that helps us mature, and the nurture of maturity. Verse 14, need. Why do Christians need to grow in maturity? This passage shows us that this is not an optional extra, a kind of optional add-on, but it is a pressing priority for every believer. And Paul combines three images in verse 14 to make his point. Have a look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now he's got these three images. Babies, Boats and bad guys. Babies, boats and bad guys. Firstly, babies. We will no longer be infants. Now the word here that's translated infants can mean a very young child or a baby. Or sometimes it can be used as well of a, a, a child, a young, a young person before they have come of age, before they can take formal responsibility. We would say a minor. Um, but one way or another, Paul is saying we must... Being an infant, being a child, being a young person is a good phase of life, but we mustn't stay like that as Christians. And the reason is the vulnerability of children, babies and young people. Look at the next phrase. Here's the image of a boat. Tossed back and forth and blown here and there. Now, the picture here changes to boat language. He uses a word that's used of ships in a storm being flung around by the waves of the sea. You can imagine an old seaboat or a sailing ship, and there it is, and it goes out on the, on the lovely calm water, but the storm comes in, and the, the boat is being thrown around. And not only are the, are the waves tossing it, but the wind comes in and blows this, this boat in, in off course and in all random directions. Now, travellers of old, ancient times, travelling in old sailing ships... Some of them have written accounts of being caught in a storm at sea. 
And I read one of these accounts with one of our kids last year. I think it was a GCSE revision paper. And it was really harrowing. Because when the storm hit, the ship was being flung so violently by these huge waves that it felt like it was actually going to turn upside down. It was, it was going up and down in the huge waves. And they drove it hither and thither. And the captain, the crew, and all the passengers were completely helpless. They were at the mercy of this storm. They were out of control. They didn't even know if they were going to survive. And if they did survive, they had no idea where the boat would be at the end of that or even what condition it would be in. And that is the image that Paul is using here of the immature Christian and the immature church. Every wind of teaching, new ideas and new, new beliefs and doctrines are just kind of coming in and blowing the people all over the place. And they're in grave danger. But there's more. Because the third image is of crafty, cunning people who are like tricksters. And the language that's used here is even used of people who are gambling with a loaded dice. They're tricking the other people. It says here in verse 14, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. See, Paul is afraid. And he knows this from personal experience. There are clever people in the church world who are actually very cunning. They have their own ideas and their self-serving teaching and ideas will come into the church and they teach these false doctrines which in some ways look very plausible. And they can take Christians off course like the ship going off the route and take them to places that they should never have ended up, maybe even shipwrecked. What a picture! The gullible, helpless infants in a ship, blown about in the middle of the storm, and there are cunning people trying to trick them. Now his big point is this. We need maturity. We need to grow up. We must do, so that we're no longer infants, but grown-up Christians, and a grown-up church. But how are we going to grow to maturity? There are two ways indicated in this passage. The first is growth in our knowledge. And the second is growth in our nurture, our nurture of maturity. So firstly, knowledge. I'm going to read again. And by the way, I know that Ephesians is, is very hard. Someone said to me last week, wow, it's like you open a box and all these other things sort of jump out of it. And it's incredibly compressed. So we're going to take our time and try and carefully look at the logic. Look again at verses 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave... The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm going to go in reverse order through these three verses, trying to show how they connect together logically. Verse 13 speaks of becoming mature and growing to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That means growing up to be who we are called to be as a church, growing to the whole measure of what Jesus has for us. When you were in your mother's womb, and you were just a tiny unborn child, 
you had all the capability in your tiny body to become the person you are today. It was all there in embryo. When you weighed less than a pound, you could, and when you could be held in one hand, you had the potential to become a fully grown person. It just needed time and maturity. And what he's saying here is, let's grow to the, the measure of the fullness, the mature fullness of Jesus Christ. How? Through being unified together in the faith and in our knowledge of Jesus. So becoming mature. Now how do we grow in the unity of the faith and this knowledge of Jesus? Then we're going to go back to verse 12. We do it by bodybuilding. Bodybuilding. Verse 12 says to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Every church should be into bodybuilding. And who does the bodybuilding in verse 12? It's every person, every member. The uh, ESV, English Standard Version, says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're all ministers. And who equips the saints? Going to go back one more verse now to verse 11. In verse 11, Paul mentions gifts that Jesus has given to the church, but he deliberately chooses five kinds of people, five gifts that Jesus gave, and they're all teaching gifts. He says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Now, the apostles and the prophets brought the once for all foundational teachings of the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures. The evangelists were the ones who took the word into new areas to take it to new people. Probably what we think of as church planters, although there are many different kinds of evangelism. And then the pastors lead the church and care for it and their authority is only in their teaching of God's word and then the teachers I think is probably a separate group explain and expound God's word to local congregations each of those five has to do with the mind of Christ the teaching of Jesus being communicated to his body this is what the head Jesus has to say and this is what you as the body the members are to be doing Now, when we talk about the knowledge of the Son of God, and we talk about the faith, we're not talking about being bookish and dry and academic. And I know some of you just loathe being bookish, dry and academic. We're talking about a certain kind of heart knowledge. Christianity is is a faith built on revelation, revealed truth. Our Muslim friends are right to call us the people of the book. Do you know the Quran actually calls Christians people of the book? And it's absolutely right. We are people of the book, the Bible. And in the Bible, we are called to love God with all of our mind, as well as our heart, soul and strength. So Christianity is not blind faith. It's not a mere emotional faith. But it is reasoned faith. Reason within the bounds of revelation, what God has shown us. So I can't understand people who say that they're Christians, but they don't like Bible teaching, or understanding doctrine, or they find biblical sermons boring. Now, of course, sermons can be boring, and a lot of sermons are terrible. But if it's on the Bible, even a bad sermon is going to teach you something good, isn't it? 
back to the body image. If you were a hand, or a finger, or a toe, or an eye, or a nose, in the body of Christ, then you will want to know how the head, the brain, wants you to function. What he wants you to do, what he wants you to think, how he wants you to act, what he wants you to enjoy, what he wants you to avoid. And this is why a Bible-believing and a Bible-teaching church is the best place to be for a Christian because it takes seriously its obligation to share with you what the head, Jesus, has said. Now, just for a moment, I'm going to have a a sidebar for anyone here uh, who is looking for a church and they're they're kind of searching around at the moment. And if you're you're in that category, it's great that you're with us. It's great that you're with us. And you haven't settled somewhere. And I'm going to make a plug, but it's not a plug for our church so much as a plug for a certain kind of church. I want to encourage you to take great care to join a church where the Bible is believed, where the Bible is taught, and the Bible is lived and shared among its members. Now, that might mean that you choose a church where the music isn't amazing. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not knocking our musicians. I thought they were wonderful today. As I said, it's not about us. You might join a church where the music isn't amazing. <clears throat> you might join a church where the public ministry, you know, the upfront kind of ministry, is, is really quite unimpressive. A lot of faithful, good churches, the public ministry is really unimpressive. Former member of our church moved to Australia. He came back. I had breakfast with him. I asked him about his new church. He said, it's, it's, it's really good. He said, it's very big. And it's very well organised. He said, to be honest, sometimes it's a bit much. It's one of those churches with this kind of huge band. And uh, I think it had um, a smoke machine. And uh, he said, everyone up front is really good looking. <laughs> and I said, so, just like Grace Church. And I don't think I've ever seen anyone laugh as much <laughs> as that former member of our church. You, you might choose a church whose public ministry is unimpressive. Another thing, you might choose a church where you don't see that you can have a lot of friends. You might think you're the only one like you in that church. But let me say this, the most important thing in your choice of church is not the music or the public impressive ministry or even friendship but will I be able to grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus there because the Bible is loved and taught that's the number one thing now here at Grace Church we're not concerned to tell you our views on politics you won't get a line here on on Brexit you, you won't hear much about current affairs or social sciences Our authority from this pulpit to tell you what you should do or think is almost zero, right? Almost zero authority. But we have only authority in one area to to try and influence your thinking, which is what does the head, Jesus, have to say in his word? That's all we have. That's the only authority. Now, the reason why this is important, again, is to protect us from being like infants who are being tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here here and there by every new kind of teaching and doctrine, and every new thing they hear, they think, oh man, I'll follow that, and then they follow another thing, and they're really unstable, 
and actually very vulnerable. And I want to just think for a couple of minutes about some of the winds of teaching and doctrine that are big in our city or are blowing through our culture. The first one is secular humanism. Secular humanism, the, the belief, the, the worldview that there is no heaven or God above, there's no spiritual realm. All there is is this material world and people working together in consensus. Now, listen, we are all, I think all of us here are affected by this. Especially if you've grown up in the West or you've studied in the West. Western Christians in the 21st century do not believe in the same way that Christians believed 500 years ago. Even the way we believe has changed because we live in a secular environment. Uh, we live in a secular intellectual environment. The air we breathe, the, the, the baseline of our media and of most of our culture is without God in it. Now, 500 years ago, the time of the Reformation, the non-believer was really the odd one out. A non-believing person would be very hard to find 500 years ago. The consensus in Western culture was Christianity. It's just that was the baseline. Now, 500 years later, Orthodox Christians are a strange minority. And the consensus is scepticism about religious claims. Right? This is the world we live in. Now, so at best, in our, in our current world, we are allowed to believe, you're allowed to believe what you like in private, but you are not permitted for your private beliefs to come out in public too much. And we are more and more seeing the impact of this on freedom of speech and on freedom of religion. Those freedom of speech and freedom of religion are being very, very gradually curtailed for Orthodox Christians in our culture. A strong secular agenda is now being brought forward into our state schools, as some of you know. There is public truth, but the public truth is a secular truth. And to some extent, it's based on science. Now, this climate, if you're zoning out, please come back. Because what I'm about to say now is, is it applies to all of us. This climate means that every Christian is now a doubter. We're all doubters now. So don't be embarrassed about your doubts. <laughs> we all have doubts. We doubt about the Bible. Is it really true? Maybe we doubt miracles. We doubt about Bible's claims about the supernatural world, about heaven and hell, about the exclusive claims of Jesus. How can he be the only way to God when there's so many different religions? About aspects of biblical ethics. We doubt in so many ways. Listen, your faith, if you're a professing Christian, your faith is under immense pressure every single day and this is just part of believing in the 21st century it's nothing to be ashamed of it's nothing to be embarrassed about part of growing in knowledge and maturity is learning how to bring your doubts and bring them out into the light and share them with other Christians who know more than you and pray about them and deal with them with an honest intellect so that the doubts don't build and build and build until in the end they crush you somebody once described Doubt as being like a, a donkey going up a mountain with a burden on its back 
And as it's going up, more and more doubts are placed on the donkey until in the end it's got such a huge burden that it just sinks to its knees. And I've known Christians who struggled with doubts, legitimate questions and concerns about their faith, but they felt they couldn't ask anyone until in the end they gave up the whole faith. What a tragedy. If we're going to mature and be coming into the fullness that God wants for us, we've got to learn to acknowledge the pressure on us in this secular environment. There's one wave and wind of teaching comes from our culture. A second one is within the church. This is what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel. This is a new wind of teaching. It's, it's only been going for a few years. Now, the prosperity gospel is the idea that if you only have enough faith in Jesus, he will bless you right now with great wealth and with physical health and with prosperity. And he'll do it all for you right now. If only you can pray and and lay claim on it and have enough faith. Now, how are members of the body of Christ to be mature and respond to this? Well, here's the thing about any false teaching. It always has at least a grain of truth in it. Otherwise, you wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't be plausible. There is, a, there is a grain of truth in the prosperity gospel. The Bible does promise us health, wealth, and prosperity beyond our wildest dreams. It promises it to every true Christian. But the issue is timing. When does the Bible promise us great health, wealth, and prosperity? The answer is in the world to come. The future new creation where Jesus returns and puts this universe to rights. The Bible makes it very clear that the great blessings of the kingdom of heaven are largely future. In this life, it warns us that we will walk in a valley of tears at times, and we will face suffering and failure and disappointment and persecution and heartache and sorrow and the effects of sin. It won't all be sorted out right now just by becoming a Christian. We were all going to die one day, unless the Lord returns, and we're all going to die of something or other, okay? Most likely some kind of sickness. Very few of us here will be wealthy, and those who are blessed with wealth in this life are to be stewards of it for the good of others. So, this new wind of teaching, we have to learn how we can engage the prosperity gospel Graciously, kindly, warmly, but not be taken in by it. Third wind of teaching, and then I'll move on to the next point. The third wind of teaching is the sacramental gospel. Sacramental gospel. And by this, I'm largely thinking of the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Although you can find this thinking in other Christian traditions. Now, the gospel that we believe, the glorious good news of Jesus can be summed up like this. You are more wicked and sinful than you ever realised, but you're more loved and accepted in Jesus than you dare to believe. How do we receive this forgiveness and love and acceptance? The New Testament teaches we receive it by grace alone, which we receive through faith alone. Simply by believing trust in Jesus Christ, we receive all his benefits of his finished work. We rest by faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ. But, and I say this respectfully, the Roman Catholic Church 
of great antiquity teaches that you receive grace through the sacraments. There are seven sacraments identified by the Roman Catholic Church and they believe that it's not through faith but through the sacramental system that grace comes to the individual person. And this is why the Roman Catholic Church places so much emphasis on things like confession and mass and last rites. By the way, these guys are not um, Roman Catholics who are walking out offended. <laughs> See you later. She has to go to work. So back, back, to, back to the point here. Uh, our Roman Catholic friends place so much emphasis on confession and going to mass and having the last rites before they die because they believe that it is through these things that you get salvation, not through faith alone. Now that sacramental gospel is actually quite appealing, partly because of the magic and the beauty of Roman Catholic ritual, partly through the size and the history of the Roman Catholic denomination, more than a billion Catholics in the world, and partly because it's human nature to want to contribute something of my own efforts to my salvation. But that official teaching the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is a false gospel. It's a wind of teaching that must be resisted. Hold on a minute, you say. I've got a lovely Catholic friend. And I'm sure he or she is a true Christian. He or she loves Jesus. They pray. They're really passionate. They, love, they read the Bible. And you know what? I'm sure they're a Christian too. Maturity... Being maturity in the, mature in the knowledge of the Son of God is, is this, being able to see that there are many, many individual Catholics who are true born-again followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to say that. Uh, being able to see that the Roman Catholic denomination does a lot of good in the world, in its charitable work, in standing up for, against injustice, in its work in the arts, and in so many ways. Being able to see that there will be times when evangelical Christians and Catholics should align with, with the Catholic Church, for example, on pro-life issues or on freedom of speech. All those things are true, and yet, at the very same time, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on salvation is a false gospel, and it should be kept distinct. And there are very real distinctions that matter, and therefore, we can't partner at every level. So as a church, to be mature in this city, we have to know who we can work with. And we would partner with Presbyterians, Anglicans, Baptists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and goodness knows who else, who shares the same gospel. And we do. This very week I, I helped to run a meeting for church planters called The Collective, with guys from different of these traditions, but they all share the same gospel. Maturity is being able to think that through and handle difference with warmth. So friends, are you taking steps to grow in your knowledge of the Son of God? Because that's one way we get to be mature. How can we grow in knowledge? Well, some here might want to take a beginner's course. We're running a course at the moment on Monday nights called Christianity Explored. A great way in to learn about the basics. Then there are Sunday services. And on Sunday night, if you're a student... We have a Bible teaching ministry called Students at Seven. They're working through Paul's letter to the Romans at the moment. We have life groups. You heard about that earlier on today. And the life groups take the sermon, but they try and apply it to life and to grow in fellowship and prayer with one another. 
We run a thing called the Crosslands Learning Site. So members of the church, anyone in the church, can come and take uh, four courses over the course of a year to deepen their understanding of theology and the Bible. Then there's your personal study. Have you read through the entire Bible at least once in your life? If not, start today. It's a great thing to do. Are you trying to study the Bible deeply on your own? Are you connected to an older Christian who can teach you? Do you ask her or him questions? And are you reading something that is stretching your knowledge? These are ways we can grow into maturity. We need to become mature. The first means of developing maturity is growing in our knowledge. And the second, and this is much briefer, is nurture. Have a look again at verse 15 and 16, please. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now here we have another reference to growing up to become a mature body. And here it's almost like a bizarre image of a head, Jesus, that's, that's kind of fully grown. <laughs> and then the body has to sort of grow up into the head, which is not the usual way that bodies grow. Okay, I get that. What is he getting at? The thrust of the image is that we, as uh, by nature immature believers, want to grow and grow so we become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more in line with him. And just as your head gives commands to the rest of your body and instructs your body and knows what's going on in your body, that we are aligned with Jesus and taking our cue from him so that we will take our lead from Jesus. And we have to nurture this kind of maturity. And it says in a wonderful phrase, we have to speak the truth in love. A wonderfully balanced statement. You know, we've got to be able to speak the truth to one another. To speak the truth if we're going to grow up. And we've just thought a lot about how that can be to do with our our doctrine, our teaching, our handling of the Bible. But also we have to speak the truth to one another about our lifestyle, about our character. We have to have a way of speaking into each other's lives in love and respectfully that helps us to grow. Otherwise, we just carry on making the same kind of mistakes over and over again. You know, there are some things, and I guess it's true of all of us, and I know it's true of me, there are some things about our character that are, are really blemishes, unhelpful things. They're not sins, but they're just, they spoil your witness. Some of us are serious, earnest Christians, but we can tend to be quite harsh. We're very good at standing for the truth, but we're not very good at thinking about other people's feelings. And so we can ride roughshod over them and be abrasive. We're valiant for truth, but not very caring. Other people are fun, and they're just great to be around, but they're a little bit careless. You know, this kind of person can be a bit prone to gossip. And if you confide something in them, you're not sure it's going to be kept a confidence or it would be blabbed out to a load of other people. That's a character flaw. Some people are just great people, but they are completely unreliable. 
If they say they're going to do something, 50% of the time it never gets done. You end up, you just think, I just can't trust them to do it. They're never on time. They don't listen in meetings. They're just great people. But character flaws make them unreliable. There are some people who, in themselves, they're quite lovely, but they're basically really self-centered. Every conversation is one way. It's all about them and their interests. Every conversation goes that way. Now, these are not sins, but they are blemishes of character, and there are plenty more we could think of. How are we going to grow in character? How am I going to grow in character? Only if someone graciously points it out to me and helps me to grow up to be like Jesus. But it must be done in love. Notice the balance. Speaking the truth in love. This is how we're going to nurture one another to grow up into mature believers. And when I read that word love, I always, my mind goes back to Paul's wonderful definition in 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably heard this, read out of the wedding. I'll read it for you, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And so for us to grow as a, as a congregation into the maturity that Jesus Christ wants for us, we will have to learn to speak the truth in that kind of way to one another. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do that. Let's pray.